Our scripture reading this morning is found in 1 John 5, and we'll be reading verses 6 through 21. Please turn with me in your Bibles there. We're concluding our series in 1 John this week, and I trust that your soul has been edified like mine has in these past weeks. It's 1 John 5, 6 through 1. Please stand for the reading of God's word. First John 5, starting in verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is God's word. Christmas is a wonderful time of year, but it does have its funny moments, doesn't it? I remember once when I was a child longing to receive a certain gift. It was a a game called Risk. It's the game I wanted for Christmas one year, and I became particularly excited when I observed under the tree there was a a, a shaped box, a box-shaped present that could be risk, you see, and so I was very much looking forward to Christmas Day. Christmas Day arrived, and I opened this box with trembling hands, and lo and behold, it was not risk, but uh, Pepys's 17th Century Diary of London. (laughs) Worthy, to be sure, but... Um, Less exciting for a seven-year-old. No, actually, of course, I 
enjoy that far more than risk these days, so it's probably a good present. Idols are a bit like that. They promise so much, and they deliver so little. Now, of course, in contemporary culture, we uh, only really use the word idol with relation to uh, a certain TV show, American Idol. And uh, in that context, it appears to mean something like uh, celebrity, rock star, or even very poor singer uh, who has given us all permission to find his or her lame performance funny. In religious terms, idol commonly means something a bit more like this, a physical statue of a god. Uh, Perhaps you might find it in a Hindu temple or if you took a uh, tour around the ruins of uh, ancient Greece and you went around the pagan Parthenon in Athens, you would see an idol. But you see, if we think of an idol as simply a pagan statue or a vain celebrity, we will actually uh, be uh, likely to miss the point that John is making as he concludes his letter. For John, an idol, uh, verse 21, is anything that replaces verse 20. The exaltation of Jesus Christ as the true God and eternal life. He, uh, referring back, I think, to the immediately preceding Jesus Christ. He, that is, Jesus, is the true God and eternal life, and anything else, John is saying, is an idol. And actually then, that that instinct, I think, is confirmed by how uh, John uh, does not actually warn us against an idol, but tells us to keep ourselves from idols, plural. That is, uh, there are any number of tendencies that might lead us to diminish, downplay, uh, sidetrack, Jesus is God. Uh, You Gnostics, he is saying, Gnostics, the false teachers that he's writing this letter to uh, counteract, uh, you Gnostics, you think you've come up with a very sophisticated way to reach the current culture. You're downplaying the proclamation that Jesus is the one true God. It's less offensive thereby. He's just another angel, uh, another way up uh, to God, up the another path up the mountain. And uh, you're um, undermining the need to live the kind of holy lives that proclaim the rule of Jesus over your practical daily existence. You see, the Gnostics, for all their bizarre ideas, uh, were popular because practically they're allowing people to live uh, somewhat immoral lives, it, it seems. You may not realize it, you Gnostics, but actually all that is truly a form of idol worship. No less than the golden calf. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything. Or in the words of Paul, those who exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Keep yourselves from idols, he says, even in Wheaton. We are not to be, as George Bernard Shaw put it, a self-made man who worships his creator. 
Now, to accept that conclusion, uh, we will want to ask John two questions. First, why? And then, how do we keep ourselves from idols? First then, why? Why does it mean this, John? Well, John answers from verses 6 through to verse 12. And there he tells us uh, that the testimony is clear. This is why. The testimony is clear that Jesus is truly the Son of God and therefore is life. You see, that's why, John is saying, we should keep ourselves from idols. Anything else is not life. A committed following of Jesus as God is not, uh, like Milton put it, to scorn delights and live laborious days. No, it is life. See, that's why, John says. And he uh, describes this testimony to this life in three ways. One, he repeats the word testify eight times just in these verses from verse 6 to verse 12. So, uh, uh, verse uh, uh, six, uh, he, he says, uh, the Spirit is the one who testifies. And then verse 10, for there are three that testify. And uh, then uh, verse 9, he says it three times, receive the testimony of men. The testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. And then verse 10, whoever believes the Son of God has the testimony in himself because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his son. And this is the testimony. So John is repeating eight times from verses 6 to 12 the word testify. And he's doing that to say that Jesus is God and his life is not a matter of debatable personal opinion, but a matter of public record. Now you and I uh, as Christians and Christian culture, we tend to use the word testify as a personal story, a testimony, and that is fine. But this word also is used of public witness. And so when Paul stood before King Agrippa and uh, was looking for a a testimony, the uh, same word is used. Or uh, in the Old Testament, when Jacob and Laban make a deal, they make an agreement, they build a pile of rocks, and it is a testimony of their agreement. So this is a public record. John is saying it is clear that Jesus is truly the Son of God and therefore is life, not a matter of debatable opinion, personal debatable opinion, but a witness of public record, a testimony like uh, a witness in court or a public memorial which everyone can see. Well, then he says there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, verses 7 to 8. Now, these are rather strange-sounding public witnesses to our ears, modern ears, aren't they? But John's readers would have understood, and when we understand, it's uh, pretty easy to grasp its contemporary resonance. And so John tells us why specifically these three, when he says uh, in verse 6, this is he who came, not by the water only, but by the water and blood. You see, at the time, the Gnostic heretic Corinthus was saying that Jesus became God at his baptism. But at his crucifixion, Jesus once more was only human. Well, John clarifies, no, Jesus in and through the water and in and through the blood was always God. Not by water only, but by water and 
and blood. That is from birth to death and resurrection, baptism and the cross. As a public witness, the whole story, he saw that Jesus is God and is life. And so here's how this works. If at Christmas perhaps I have questions about Jesus' full incarnate deity, that he always was God and is God, that the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Son, eternally generated, became flesh. If I have questions about that, what can I do? Well, I can receive the testimony of men like John and the other apostles who saw Jesus. He, he, uh, I saw him, I heard him, I touched him. He was God and his life. So there's a public record witnessed publicly by John and the other apostles, but also three, the testimony of God is greater. Now this is what I think uh, John means by this, and if you study philosophy or apologetic debate, you'll recognize how important this is. You see, the Spirit witnessed to Jesus' divinity at Jesus' baptism. You remember the story, don't you? Descending on him as a dove and a voice from heaven said, this is my son. So this is what John is saying here. If foundationally the witness to God is only human, it is logically questionable. In, In the same way, a child cannot give credible witness to the skill of a three-star general. Only God can foundationally witness to God. But to avoid circularity, humans can and did witness to that witness, Sir John and the other apostles. And so we have a divine witness of public record. And the work of God continues, the Spirit in us who believe. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself, not that internal only, but confirming the external witness of God, the public record, the witness by the apostles and in Scripture. And so that's why John can say that to deny this, that Jesus is God and His life, to deny this is to say that God is a liar, for it is ultimately His witness. And so that is why uh, we are to flee idols. These three reasons, public record, witness publicly, and foundationally by God Himself, make it clear that Jesus is truly the Son of God and therefore is life. Of course, my friends, that's what Christmas is really all about. Behind all the merriment and fantasy, there stands a Christmas choice. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. A Christmas choice. Anything that does not exalt Jesus as the true God and His eternal life is an idol. And so why should we keep ourselves from idols? Because of the public record witnessed publicly and testified to by God Himself that Jesus is God and therefore that is life to worship and follow Him. And so that's why we should keep ourselves from the idolatry uh, of money. Eleanor Roosevelt said, he who loses money loses much. He who loses a friend loses much more. He who loses faith loses all.
And we could add now, couldn't we? He who makes an idol of money will lose life. Why? Jesus is the true God and eternal life. God is not a bank balance. Life is not a pension plan. Jesus is the true God and eternal life. And that's why we are to keep ourselves from the idolatry of money. He is life. Or the idolatry of people. He who makes an idol of a relationship will, in the end, lose life. For what my friends think of me is not life. How my peers grade my performance is not God. Or the idolatry of successful ministry. He who makes an idol of converting other people will lose a life. How did Jesus put it? They travel over land and sea to win a single convert. For that they are converted becomes more important than to whom they are converted. Evangelistic success, large churches, effective ministry is not God. And it is not life. Jesus is God. And He is life. And that's why we are to keep ourselves uh, from idols. Life. Well, second, how? How are we actually to do it? Now, my friends, any uh, discussion like this of idolatry, even when rightly defined and pastorally and carefully applied can lead to an unhealthy introversion, a sort of navel-gazing idol hunt. And it uh, reminds me of a very funny story I love to tell and fortunately have not yet told you. Uh, There was a pastor uh, some years ago, the story goes, uh, who uh, found the roads uh, to church blocked uh, one winter because of snow. And so uh, it was Sunday, and he needed to get there, so he decided he would skate on the river to get to church that Sunday. When he arrived uh, at the church, the leaders of the church were horrified. He had skated on the Lord's Day. And then after the service, they held a meeting, and after much discussion, the, the pastor tried to explain it was either skate to church or not go to church at all. Finally, one man asked, Did you enjoy it? (laughs) And when the preacher answered no, they decided it was all right. Well, avoiding idolatry, my friends, is not uh, like that. It's not life as defined. It uh, it is said once by Bismarck. Uh, Life, he said, is like being at the dentist. You always think the worst is still to come, and yet it is over already. No, what happens when we keep ourselves from idols is not like going to the dentist on a good day, but confidence. In fact, the very opposite of unhealthy introversion and navel-gazing, confidence. That's John's view. If we trust the testimony, that's why we keep ourselves from idols, then we will confidently know. That's a word he uses seven times from uh, verse uh, 13 to verse 20 is the final nail in the coffin of the Gnostic claim to some sort of superior 
knowledge. Oh no, he says, we know we have eternal life, verse 13. And so keeping ourselves from idols, uh, then, that is, will give us assurance. See how, this is how this works. Eternal life is not just what happens after we die. No, it is the life we receive when we believe in Jesus, the life that never dies. The life of the age to come is now in us who believe, and we in Him. And so those who keep themselves from idols will find that life vigorously energized in them, and therefore they will naturally be assured of their life forever. Dying for them is not a journey into the unknown. It is the opening of a frosted window to see the face which before was only imperfectly observed. We also know confidence then in prayer, verse, uh, verses 14 and 15, for those who keep themselves from idols. It is said uh, that God always answers prayer, though sometimes the answer is a merciful no. And that's certainly been true in my life and probably in, in many of ours. But uh, John is saying a little bit more than that. He's saying for those who do keep themselves from idols, who pray according to his will, verse 14, therefore, we can have confidence that the requests we have, been, we have asked have been granted, verse 15. You see, that's why it's always a mistake to separate prayer from preaching. Effective prayer and vigorous Bible study should always go hand in hand. Why? For we know God's will from His Word and when we pray His will, we can then have confidence that the request will be granted. So much so, in fact, that uh, verses 16 and 17, we will give someone who is sinning the gift of life. He will give him life. As we pray God's will, and this, this, these rather complicated couple of verses here, as we pray God's will, ours and His become one. And in a sense, we are giving someone life through our prayer in God's will. Now, John doesn't want to raise unrealistic expectations. This will not work with all, as some have perhaps gone beyond our prayerful reach. I think that's what he's saying there in that rather difficult bit. That is, it will not be effective always. But for many, it's not too late now. And the rescue back to life will be traced to a prayer meeting or a prayer calendar or a prayerful person keeping herself or himself from idols. See, John so believes in the resurrection effect of this prayer that he simply says that by so praying, he will give them life. So next time you're struggling uh, to get up to pray in the, in the morning, the alarm clock goes off and you just feel like, oh, I can't quite be bothered this morning. Remember this, your prayer could give someone life. So we know assurance then as we keep ourselves from idols. We know confidence in prayer. Also, verses 18 and 19, we know... That though the evil one is powerful, the person who is born of God is protected by the born of God, that is, Jesus. 
So here's how this works. However bad the evil we face, we are ultimately safe and the evil one does not touch him. Uh, Job may suffer, but his life is safe. Why? Jesus is God and he is life. That cannot be touched. I remember once uh, walking into a building that had been used as an Islamic training center for imams. And I walked into the alcove where the chief imam used to sit to train the others. And the sense of evil was so strong, I felt I had entered the pit. Even that. Even a terrible trauma of inexplicable suffering. Even a child who is sick or a parent who is absent or a job that is hellish or the threat of hell itself. We, the born of God, are protected by Him, the born of God, and are safe. He is God and He is life. Those who keep themselves from idols, their great reward will be to have confidence in that. Know that. Assurance of life, confidence in prayer, confidence in this dark world of evil. And also, we know, verse 20, that the Son of God has come and given us understanding. We know Him who is true. That We have understanding. We have the truth. Not just complicated philosophical ideology, but Him who is true. So here's how this works. We wonder what is going on perhaps with society today. We try to make some sense of government or the wars and rumors of wars in the Middle East. But those who keep themselves from idols will know, be sure of Him who is true. I know who holds the future, even when the future seems uncertain. I know who will win, even when victory seems unlikely. I know His plan for His people is good, and all His paths are peace. He is God and He is life. So keep yourselves from idols, little children. Why? Public testimony, witnessed publicly, testified to by God Himself. So it's clear that Jesus is the Son of God and is life. How? 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 Perhaps uh, you feel I have not told you quite how. Only how good it would be if you managed to keep yourself from idols. Ah, you see, that is how. The power of an idol is its false promise of life. And John breaks that power by showing why Jesus is clearly the true God and is truly life. And then by showing how having Jesus alone as our object of worship will bring such confidence. 
You see, instead, because idols do not give us what they promise when we follow them, we lack confidence, if we're honest. We can put a brave face on our idolatry, but, well, money is a fair-weather friend. And we do better to invest it in an eternally secure bank. And fame is fickle. We do better to serve, even if unnoticed. And beauty is fleeting. We do better to invest in the beauty that will not fade and will last forever internally in our relationship with Jesus. And academic prowess is insecure, which is why I suspect universities are always offering new degrees to assure us we really are bright after all. And we do better to love God with our mind. For only Christ is life. So only those who follow Him will know they have life. You say, uh, Pastor, I'm still not sure I can do it. This idol is too precious to us, Golom. We want it. We need it. We are lost without it. Susanna, the uh, mother of the famed John Wesley, is said to have written in the flyleaf of the Bible that Wesley was given these words, sin will keep you from this book, but this book will keep you from sin. How? 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 Read first John. That is why it was written and how you may know. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Read First John. Over and over again if necessary. The word was written that you may have life. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we pray that you would help us to flee from idols, money, fame, beauty. You would help us, Father, to see their false promise of life. To discover what is true respect and honor. What is true wealth. What is true beauty. To find all that in your son, Jesus. For he 
his God and his life. We bow before him in worship. In the name of Jesus, amen.